0: Welcome to another episode of Oncosnacks, an Oncology for the Inquisitive Minds spin-off. Joseph McCarthy was an American politician who served as a Republican senator from the state of Wisconsin from 1947 until his death in 1957. Beginning in 1950, McCarthy became the most visible public face of a period in the United States in which Cold War tensions fueled fears of widespread communist subversion, He is known for alleging that numerous communists and Soviet spies and sympathisers had infiltrated the United States federal government, universities, film industry, and elsewhere. And Josh, unlike most of my slightly wacky introductions, this actually has some very minor uh, relevance to our current topic, which is immune-mediated pneumonitis. And Joseph McCarthy is the example that I frequently give patients of a particular vintage when I'm trying to get them to visualize the concept of immune mediated side effects and the reasoning behind the simile Josh is that when immunotherapy works it works fantastically and the toxicity is frequently very minimal however when immunotherapy stimulates the immune system to a unhelpful degree, Much like Joseph McCarthy was seeing communists on every street corner, the immune system starts seeing cancer where there is in fact none. And this is how we get the very broad range of side effects collectively known as immune mediated
1: adverse events. Your introduction took my breath away, Michael. And we're back to lame puns. (laughs) It's
0: all right. Josh is on call today, so he's very tired. So we'll excuse him for that one. But yes- But yes, we are talking about immune-mediated pneumonitis, which is a fairly common and frequently quite severe side effect of immunotherapy. So, Josh, would you like to take us in with a bit of
1: an introduction? I would love to take you in with a bit of an introduction, Michael. Pneumonitis has become more prevalent, mostly in the context of increased use of immunotherapy, we, um, consisting of PD-1 inhibitors, pdl one inhibitors, and CTLA-4 in inhibitors. You might recognize the following names, such as nivolumab, pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, atezolizumab, devalumab, avalumab, the list goes on and on and on.
0: Pretty much anything ending with a MAB. In oncology, you can guarantee it's an
1: immunotherapy. That's exactly it. And, you know, with over 50 immunotherapy agents currently under research, this is only going to become more and more common. You might be asking now, what? how common is this, Josh? How worried do I need to be? So a meta-analysis containing 26 studies found that the overall incidence of immunotherapy-related pneumonitis was about 2.7% for all grades and 0.8% for grade 3 or above. But Josh, is that reflective
0: of wider practice or do we think that the incidence is actually higher? Well, it's
1: interesting that you say that. I think the original research and studies showed quite high incidence of pneumonitis. But over time, we've got much better at managing this. And I think probably the incidence is somewhat a little bit less. I don't think it's significantly less because we definitely do have patients regularly that have pneumonitis and we have to manage this. And I think... It always has to be that differential in the back of your mind when someone comes in with shortness of breath. Compounding this is that really different cancers have different rates of pneumonitis. An example of this is non-small cell lung cancer, which suggests that the incidence of pneumonitis seemed higher in the real world with rates up to 19% and high grade in up to 11% as per one study. And so not all immunotherapies are equal, and not all cancers have the same representation of pneumonitis. One of the things you mentioned there, Josh, was the higher incidence of
0: pneumonitis in the non-small cell lung cancer space. And I think this leads into one of the major risk factors for patients to actually develop pneumonitis after immunotherapy, which is previous lung disease and obviously... Even though the landscape is changing, the majority of patients with non small cell lung cancer have some smoking or occupational history. And so they are more at risk of developing pneumonitis when their lungs are subjected to an additional insult. And that's not just smoking, as I said, occupational exposures, a past history of ILD. Rarely you can have things like uh, pneumonitis associated with other anti-cancer therapies such as bleomycin, basically anything that is causing pre-existing damage to the lungs puts a patient at risk of immune-mediated pneumonitis. So it's very important before you actually give a, a patient immunotherapy that you stop and think, what could I be causing with this treatment?
1: One other risk factor to mention and of course associated with Michael's smoking comment is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease which did show and a chronic history of asthma also showed increased incidences and I think it's important to note people who are in dual immunotherapy agents as per the Checkmate 227 study saw in high incidence of all grade pneumonitis about 3.8 versus 2.3 percent so really got to check out the uh, combination therapies there.
0: But if you're choosing one immunotherapy as the main driver, it's PD-1 and PDL ones isn't it? I think the incidence of pneumonitis associated with CTLA-4 inhibitors, which is predominantly ipilimumab, is actually fairly low. It's interesting you say that
1: because I did a bit of reading, Michael, that said people who do have pneumonitis on CTLA-4s are generally never re-challenged. I don't have the background as to why that's the case, but... Whereas sometimes in the context of pdr ones they are actually re challenged. I think
0: before we sort of get too far into the weeds, I might just <laughs> mention a, a couple of things, uh, and I'm going to be giving many of our listeners who have recently come through their. Written in clinical physicians' exams, PTSD, um, but I'm going to mention uh, the most common patterns of pneumonitis because <laughs> oh, yes, no. and and Josh is is right there with our listeners uh, in his suffering. But the main reason is that the pattern of pneumonitis that you see on imaging can potentially help with the um, w- with your differential. Uh, so the two most common manifestations of immune-mediated pneumonitis are organising pneumonia and
1: non-specific
0: interstitial pneumonia. That's a pretty good uh, summary, Michael. Um,
1: and,
0: and I will not say any more. <laughs> don't need to worry about No, no,
1: no. That's really good. Uh, so we will link some descriptions of these articles that we've gone through just because understanding the imaging and what it means is important, but things like honeycombing and ground glass opacity for anyone sitting exams really important stuff. Track and Traction bronchiectasis like tram tracks. And of course, symptomatology, the highest one that Michael mentioned, dyspnea, which is about 53% followed by cough at 35% and fever at 12%. Again, I think we just in the context of time, Michael, how would you investigate someone that you thought had pneumonitis? I think the first thing to do is gain some imaging
0: and it's important to note that a chest radiograph or a chest x-ray Is generally not thought to be sufficient for the diagnosis of pneumonitis So you need a CT scan, usually a high-resolution CT scan Because that enables you to visualise the ground glass opacities the Whether the sub space is involved Because that is a differentiator between organising pneumonia and NSIP um, And so getting some imaging and having a very low threshold to image people who are on or have been on checkpoint inhibitors, because that's another quirk of this uh, side effect, is that it can occur even after checkpoint inhibitors have been withdrawn. So getting having, having it in the back of your mind, getting some imaging, and potentially if it's a little bit undifferentiated, for example if the patient is having those low-grade fevers, Early consultation with your friendly neighbourhood respiratory physician, maybe even a bronchoscopy to rule out infective causes, um, is
1: very important. That's great. Mikey, one other question for the floor. Do you know what the average time from administration of immunotherapy to development of symptoms from a pneumonitis perspective is? I suspect it's about three months. You're pretty close. Median is 2.8 months, but I couldn't give it to you because it was 2.8 uh, months. Just, just round it up. and But of course... <laughs> You've got to give me that. One. Yeah, well, I'll give it to you. It also, it can range from 2 to 24 months. So patients who are on their treatment for two years can still get it at the end of their treatment. Other investigations you should think about include pulmonary function tests. And if you're, it might be a CT chest, but it might also be a high-resolution CT, which has a little bit more detail with respect to what you'll find on the CT imaging, and of course, oximetry as well is very important in case they're sat desaturating.
0: So Josh, how do we grade the severity of uh, pneumonitis that we suspect is related to immune checkpoint inhibitors? Obviously, we're not going to go through every last little detail. We'll put a link in the episode description as well as on our website. Um, but in general, how do you grade
1: immune-mediated pneumonitis. I guess it's how scared I am. No, that's, that's not the right answer. <laughs> um. So g- grade one is asymptomatic with radio radiographic changes only. So you've done a CT on a, maybe it's a staging scan. They've got, you know, let's say melanoma and you, you want to progress imaging or lung cancer. Uh, and you found some, you know, reticular changes in the peripheries. Grade two is re- generally mild to moderate new symptoms. So a new onset of cough or shortness of breath. Symptoms worsening seeing a baseline and limit, limiting instrumental activities of daily living. So things like I was making myself breakfast and all of a sudden I couldn't like put away the dishes. I'm doing a terrible Australian accent. <laughs> I was going to say. I, I don't know. And then you move to grade three, so severe symptoms. So you get hypoxia in grade three, you know, really limiting self-care ADLs. And grade four is life-threatening where they're just dyspneic in front of you and they're diaphoretic. And I actually had a patient the other week who I'm like, I need to send you to ED now. And we sent him there and we just, I, I had this suspicion. I'm like, it's either A or B and pneumonitis was the top of my differential. I think it's also important to exclude other potential differentials, Michael, things like pneumonia or disease progression or fluid on the lung, but you always get that when you end up doing a CT imaging to be able to exclude those potential concomitant differentials.
0: Your patient who had the grade four pneumonitis, did he have a terrible Australian accent?
1: Uh, No, he did not. Only Josh, it turns out. Mikey, so we've diagnosed the person with pneumonitis and I've I've called a friend because I'm in the corner really, really stressed. How how are you going to manage this guy's pneumonitis or girls?
0: I love your inclusivity. So I guess, again, the management depends on how scared you are. (laughs) If if it's a patient who has grade one pneumonitis uh, that's incidentally found, as Josh said then you can probably manage it conservatively. At the most, you're going to start them on some steroids, which are the mainstay of management of any immune-mediated side effect. But you can probably hold off. You can work them up. You can go through all of the differentials that Josh mentioned, refer them to either a respiratory or infectious diseases physician, discuss it at an MDM. You've got time. Uh, And it often resolves purely by withholding treatment so you might not even need steroids you just give them a bit of a break however you do need to monitor patients closely in the early stages because obviously at the first sign of them getting worse you need to act to prevent potential potential deterioration so if they are grade two Um, you should consider hospitalization. And again, grade two, as Josh said, it is sort of mild to moderate new symptoms that are limiting instrumental ADLs. I believe those were the exact words that you used um, because we're reading from the same hymn sheet. Uh, But really it's for observation and for the commencement of steroid therapy. And obviously referrals to specialists tend to happen quicker in hospital, but you start oral prednisolone, and this is important. Don't our more junior listeners don't do what I once did and start DEX and think that it's all done. It's actually specifically prednisolone, one to two milligrams per kilogram per day. At this point, you can also consider things like empirical antibiotics, but it really depends on the clinical situation. And like I said, the main thing you can do is watch the patient day to day, hour to hour, and see if they're improving. Because again, if they're not improving, and patient's will improve at varying rates. Some will bounce back really quickly. Others will take their sweet time. And again, I suspect a big part of that comes down to the state of their lungs to start with. But you monitor them. And if they're not really improving at all with steroids, then you need to consider either treating them as a more severe grade, which we'll get to in a second, or considering alternative diagnoses. Now, at the pointy end in the grade 3 to 4s, so Josh is hiding in the corner, crying, uh, and watching as the patient's oxygen saturations are going from 90 to 85 to 80 to 75. So what does Josh do, aside from sit in the corner and cry? Well, Josh makes an urgent referral to respiratory and potentially infectious diseases, but I would only really bother with ID if there is some thought of alternative causes. Really, you need respiratory and often you need intensive care because if it is clinically appropriate, sometimes these patients need to go to the intensive care unit for some NIV or in severe cases, intubation. Obviously, that's not something that happens every single time and that needs to be thoroughly discussed with the relevant specialists. You need to then urgently administer corticosteroid therapy and when you're hitting grade 3 and grade 4, you're reaching for methylprednisolone. So methylprednisolone... One to two milligrams per kilogram per day, and as we've said in previous episodes, one milligram of methylpred is equivalent to one point two milligrams of oral pred. So even though the numbers are the same, the dose is actually slightly higher. And obviously, after this, if the symptoms don't worsen, then you can consider additional non-corticosteroid immunosuppressive therapy, such as infliximab, mycophenolate, IVIG, or cyclophosphamide. Again, you'll be reaching out to your friendly respiratory physician, but if it gets to that stage, Josh, I don't know about you, but if it gets to that stage, I really think that patients are in dire straits, and I don't think I've ever seen someone come back from a steroid refractory grade 4 pneumonitis.
1: Yeah, it's generally pretty, pretty scary when you see someone with a grade 4 pneumonitis because they're... They're going to be very symptomatic and they're going to be in very high dose of steroids uh, for quite a long time. The other important thing to talk about is how do you wean the steroids and what other considerations are there? The biggest thing is to make sure you go slowly. Depending on the grade, you might want to continue at a certain dose for several weeks and then slowly wean by 5 to 10 milligrams over a period of 4 to 6 weeks. On the rare occasion, you can also have refractory where you wean their steroids and then all of a sudden it flares up again and their pneumonitis comes back, of which you then become more inclined to raise their steroids and then again slowly reduce. Something that is, I think, a pitfall for beginners is you've got to make sure that you cover them for PJP in Australia. We use. Uh, backroom dual strength, most places, probably three times a week or potentially twice a week, depending on your institutional guidelines, because saving them from pneumonitis, but not from other things is potentially a bad look.
0: It's also bad for the patient, Josh. Um, but PJP is very, very nasty as well. The other thing as well to cover, uh, another pitfall for juniors, is to make sure that they are on uh, some sort of PPI, because if you're hitting these patients with... Very, very high dose of steroids. Over a long period of time, they are at high risk of developing gastritis. And again, you don't want them having an upper GI bleed after they've just scraped through with a really bad pneumonitis. And Josh, I guess the final question before we wrap up this episode is the question of rechallenging.
1: This is a really difficult question to answer, Michael. And I actually had a conversation about this exact issue a couple of weeks ago. Some of the literature states that recurrence of i guess pneumonitis can be in up to thirty three percent of patients that are rechallenged, so the question is this: if it was a grade three or grade four, I would be pretty i would not rechallenge. I think if it was a grade two and it was easily resolved, I would consider it and if it was a grade one, then I'd definitely want to kind of retry depending on what our trajectory was for the particular cancer and what the outcome is that we wanted. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, what you said then I feel is very important, and that's the trajectory of the cancer. If, for example, you are giving someone immunotherapy because you don't think they could tolerate chemotherapy and they have complete resolution of their symptoms and they're willing and understand the risk of recurrence, as you said about 30, 35, 40%. It is a discussion with the patient, but you really do have to consider what's going to happen if I don't restart the immunotherapy versus what happens if I do. You really do have to weigh up the pros and cons
1: of restarting. So that was a wonderful summary, Michael. I think we are on the same page here. Thank you so much for, again, joining us on our journey through the OncoSnacks on our next Snack episode we have a guest her name is Dahlia Davidov an endocrinologist and a PhD candidate will be talking to us about the thyroid in the context of immunotherapy complications see you then bye <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.